We're, we're looking at a passage in Psalm chapter 41 today. Now, we are in our series called Happy Is, and we've been looking at um, different ways in which Scripture tells us that happiness is ours. So we started this off in Psalm chapter 1, and we talked about what that word blessed means, that it actually means happy is, um, and uh, in the Hebrew, and how people hesitate to use that definition, the actual definition of the word, because our idea of happy is so diluted these days. It's not a feeling. It's more than a feeling. Happiness is a state the way God lays it out for us. It's a, it's a place you get to exist. It's something that runs underneath, the current underneath all of the circumstances of our lives. It's not a feeling that's dependent upon how someone treats you today or whether they click like or share on one of your posts. It's not a feeling based on whether things are rolling your way or they're going difficult. It's not just a feeling. Happiness is something that God has for you. It's, it's a state for you to be in. You are blessed. You don't have to get blessed. Happiness is yours through God and Christ. And the second week we talked about how it's not a destination. We treat happiness like a destination when we say things like when. When, I'm go- when, when, I, when I get there, then I'll be happy. When I get that promotion, then I'll be happy. When he gets his act together, then I'll be happy. When I find a new man, then I'll be happy. I don't know why I did that head shake right there. <laughs> I feel like it added a little sass, a little sass to it. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a destination. If it was a destination, you would barely ever be happy. You'd like win the Super Bowl one day and you'd, be have, a, you'd have a great day and then the next day the Super Bowl's over. You're going back to work. Everybody's mad at you for whatever because they hate the Eagles. You know, I don't know, but like if happiness was a destination, your time at happy would be short-lived. Thank God it's not a destination. It's something that God has for you for the journey And we looked in another psalm that week, and today I want to talk to you about The Path is Backwards. That's the title of today's message, The Path is Backwards. And uh, we're going to look into a book, one of the last psalms David wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 41. If you have your Bibles, you want to flip there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You want to use your phone, that's cool too. You ever notice that you can have something but not experience it? Do you ever, you can have something right there, but never really experience it. Do you ever notice how that's true about life? You can have Amazon Prime, and still, because you're trying to save a buck, pick the thing that's shipping from China, and it's going to take three months to get here. There's probably somebody in this room still waiting for a Christmas present, Because someone had Amazon Prime, but they didn't experience it. They just (laughs) shipped it from overseas, and it's stuck in the middle of the ocean somewhere. You can have an amazing wife. All the women are going to love this one. Maybe I shouldn't get ahead of myself. I don't know if anybody's going to love this one. You can have an amazing wife and never experience her because you're playing Call of Duty every night. You know what I'm saying? You can have... A great job and not experience it because you're too focused on 
the whatever, you know, the, the problems, the issues. You can have something but not really experience it. And I think this is an issue in Christianity. You see, I think in our Western idea of Christianity, and this is why I think so many young people walk away from the faith, so many People leave the church and it takes forever for them to come back. And, and maybe that's you. And if, if it is you, welcome back. This is a place made for you. It's not made for those people that, you know, this is a place that is for you no matter where you are on your journey, no matter what your past church experience is, even if you don't have any. But I think that one of the biggest issues for people is they may know about God. They may have heard about Jesus. They may know the story of the cross and the empty tomb but they haven't actually experienced what it means to walk in relationship with that Jesus. You can know theology, but never have it hit your heart. You can come Sunday mornings and cry tears at the wonderful songs and, you know, get all excited or upset about what the preacher's wearing, listen to the message, but never actually have it impact your life. No wonder there's so many people that think Christianity is empty and that church is a waste. I can't blame them. You see, I'm not interested in just knowing about Jesus I want to know what it's like to walk in that faith. I need him in the nitty-gritty, the real deal trouble of life. I need it to be real. I don't need an intellectual agreeance with a statement. I want a faith lived out of my heart. Happiness is something that is easy to talk about in theory. Happiness is something that's easy to talk about when it comes to theology. It's hard to experience. And I don't know where you're at, but I'm not interested in just knowing the promises of God. I want to live in them. I'm not interested in just knowing what the Bible says about happiness. I'm interested in knowing it, but I want it to affect my heart and my life. I want to experience it. I don't want to treat God like Amazon Prime. I don't want to treat God like I got a Call of Duty game I got to play that's too important right now. I don't, I don't want to just theoretically and theologically know what I'm supposed to know. I want to have it affect my heart. I want to experience the blessing of my faith. I want to experience what it, what it means when God says he has more for us than we could have imagined, more than we thought of praying for. There's a lot of people that I think the disconnect in their walk is because they know some stuff about God, but they actually haven't ever experienced him. And we're going to talk about happiness in a second, but can I just say this? Like, if that's you, why not just take it to the next level? It's good in theory, but it's a absolutely world-changing, heart-changing when you actually make it your own and start to live in it. Now, here's another disclaimer about this passage. What Psalm 41 is going to give us is one way, and it's not the only way, it's one way to start to experience 
this happiness, this blessing God has for us in real life, in real time. How to take our idea of happiness and change it from a theological concept or a psychosocial idea into an actual experience in life. Now, it's a simple step that I really struggle with. In fact, when I was coming up with the lesson for this, I was studying it, I was like, okay, how do I preach a whole sermon on this? It's so simple, but it's so hard. It's almost too easy, yet I don't do it. <laughs> the path is backwards. You see, if we're being really honest about how we think we get more happiness for all of us, even for those who have been going to church since Noah sailed the ark, <laughs> we would all still answer uh, in, in ways that are ab about us. Well, I love, and I don't want to like step too close on anybody's toes, but I, I love that worship song because it just makes me feel so good. I, I love that. I'm, I'm gonna, that relationship with that person is so important because of how it makes me feel. We set our path to happiness in a self-focused, self-central way, but the path to happiness, to experiencing the blessing that God has for you is backwards to the way we normally think. It's less about I, more about us. It's less about me and more about others. To truly experience happiness, I have to unplug the selfish, self-focused part of my heart and actually learn to live. You ready for this? World-changing, mind-blowing, not that inspiring. I actually have to live for others. <laughs> And everybody's like, okay, I'm going to work on the grocery list now. Here comes the whole, like, you got to serve in church, pitch, whatever. Like, hang on here. Because at the end of this message, I think there's five. I, I pulled five. You could pull many, many more. I love, what I love about scripture is the Holy Spirit speaks to us in different ways through his words. And, and I pulled five things at the end of this that I think are important relational lessons. No matter what relationship you apply them to, these things pull weight. They will make an actual real difference in every relationship. They'll make a difference in your relationship with your spouse. They'll make a difference in your relationship with your bestie. They'll make a difference in your relationship with your grandkids, with your mother-in-law, all of the people. All of the people. But most importantly, when we apply them the way David encourages us to apply them, the impact of those things are just exponential. So, while this is easy and hard, while it seems like we've heard it a million times, yet we struggle to practice it, here we go, Psalm 41. Blessed, happy, are those who have, now this is a word, there's two words in this very first sentence, regard, for the weak. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. That's it. Now, now listen to the next verses and what it says. And if you're really like studious and you love to write in your Bible like I do, 
And the next verse is like scribble down the positive things it lays out. This is what David says about the blessing that those who have regard for the weak get to experience. He says this, the Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desires of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. Now, before I go on, can I just say that you entered a space that has lived in this blessing over the last two years? I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, like, I didn't even read Psalm 41 before any of this craziness went down around us in these last couple of years. But this church has always been a church that has had regard for the week, we have things like gifts of grace where we give lots of money to help people that hit un- unpredictable and unplannable uh, circumstances that pop up in life that threaten them and their family and their health and their wealth and all that stuff. We, we have this huge fund we use to help people. We have uh, Shepherd's Table, which feeds people every month, both here in Cresona and Tremont. Like, we think it's a big deal that we exist to help people, right? And it just occurred to me. That when we're sitting in meetings saying, I don't know how we, like, we're doing good financially as a church. All these things, still, we've had our hiccups, but things are going. Like, we planted a campus in the middle of a pandemic, you know? Do you know why? Not because Josh picks cool outfits out. <laughs> it's because God is looking for his children to have regard for the weak. And when he sees it, he blesses. Now, let me continue here because the rest of this is important too. And I don't want to talk about me. I don't want to talk about church. He says, David says, I have, I said, now he's on his sick bed. Many people think that this might be the time where he's not going to make it like his deathbed kind of thing. It's the last, one of the last Psalms. We think that David wrote, if not the last Psalm, right? So he goes on and he says this, if you've ever been beat up by life, by the way, you ever had a relationship blow up, a friend stab you in the back, you're not alone. Listen to this. When one of the, um, I have said, have mercy on me, Lord, heal me, for I've sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die <laughs> and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes around and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from this place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. I don't know why people stab us in the back or we're loud, pain or suffering, but I do know that you're not alone. You're not alone. But may you, Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me for my enemy does not triumph over me because of my integrity. You uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. God's looking for his children to care 
and to show they care in how they live. The path is backwards. It's not about me and what I get out of the situation or what I get out of a relationship. It's not even about how it makes me feel. The true path to happiness comes when we set ourselves aside and we show regard for others. It's a theme that's all throughout scripture. Just real quick, you know, it's one that James, in James chapter one, this is how this same idea is said, in case you're wondering if it was just a David thing or is it in the New Testament too. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the ways of the world. In Romans chapter 15, after a whole chapter of talking about how we should, our attitude should be with those who are weaker than us, right? So any Giants fans, this would apply to, you know. In Romans chapter 15, it says this. It says, those who are strong ought to bear with the shortcomings of the weak. Do you see that a lot these days? I don't see any billboards saying that. I haven't seen any ads on TV hinting at this idea. It seems like it's becoming more and more of the opposite. Those who are strong ought to criticize the weak. Those who are strong ought to share their opinions louder than the weak. Those who are strong ought to bully up and chest up to those who are weak. Those who are strong ought to lecture the weak. It seems like there's a lot of that going on, but how much of this bearing with the shortcomings of the weak do we see? It goes on to say, not to please ourselves, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build them up, for the neighbor's good to build them up. What's backwards about this is a life where you actually live it for others is so, so much more fulfilling than a life lived for self. A life lived for self, the happiness will be there, but it'll always be fleeting. It'll always be hard to gather It'll be even harder to hold on to. But a life lived for others on this backward path to experiencing happiness is one where you get to find joy in hidden places. You get to experience happiness in unexpected ways. It surprises you when you're not expecting it. I don't want to reap more selfishness. I want to reap more grace and mercy, understanding, peace. So I'm going to sow it. And while I sow it, God's watching and pours the blessings out. This lawyer came up to Jesus and said, what's the most important thing? How do I get to heaven in Luke chapter 10? And uh, what must I do to inherit an eternal life? And Jesus said, what's written? The guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Got the first two, the most two, the things that Jesus said, everything else hangs on. He got those right. Yet something wasn't connecting with him. He wanted out of this easy answer. So he 
Jesus said, you answer correctly, do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told him a story that you might find familiar. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells this parable to all of these listeners about this guy who got beat up on his journey. It's a very difficult road in life, not much different than the difficult roads we find ourselves on. It was full of traps and full of enemies and full of people that would rather see us beat down than lifted up. This guy gets mugged on this journey, and a priest walks by and sees him and crosses by on the other side of the road. Levite, who is just as important, walks up, sees him there, crosses on the other side of the road. The two people who should help didn't help. The two people whose faith, whose theoretical knowledge of God, whose theology should have demanded that they do something. If they really understood this God, they would have done something they walked by. Don't want to be bothered. Not enough time. A good Samaritan comes up. A Samaritan, his audience would have hated this, this analogy. They all hated the Samaritans. They viewed them as lesser humans, of outcasts, dirty, filthy, whatever. He's talking to a bunch of, of Israelite, Jewish people right now. And Samaritans were like half Jewish and half Israelite. And that's a long story for another sermon. So this guy comes up and he sees the man in need and he goes to him and he gives up his time and he gives up his wealth and he gives, he sets his own agenda aside and he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to an inn where he cares for his wounds. He invests some significant time. He comes back to check on him like this guy. And, and he says, who was the neighbor? They couldn't even answer the good Samaritan. They just had to say, ah, the guy who stopped, right? He said, I want to acknowledge and what's interesting about this is like Jesus wasn't saying who's the neighbor you should love because it's everyone. He was saying be a neighbor who loves. Regard for the weak. Regard in this Hebrew language, this word here, it's, it's care. But it's, it's really caring. It's not just throwing money at a problem. It's not just throwing, you know, well wishes to somebody in need. It's not just some easy like, oh, I'm praying for you comment that we so often just post on Facebook. I hope we really pray after we comment those kind of things. I hope we do. It's more than that. This word regard is the idea to really see and consider how you could best help someone. What makes it even harder is the word weak. Old translations have poor in there. But weak is a better translation because when we think of poor, we think of money, right? When I say poor, you think of money. That's not what it's taught. That's our Western idea of poor. But do you all know, like, there are some millionaires who are pretty poor? Do you know that? Like, your, your income doesn't get to label your heart poor or not poor. I know some people who'd have trouble coming up with a meal for the week, but they aren't poor. You know what I'm saying? It means this. I'm actually going to read the words from this definition. The weak here, some older translations have poor, but the weak in this verse, regard for the weak, it has to do with the poor, scrawny. I wish I was a little more scrawny. Um, Unimportant. Who are the unimportant people you work with? I know they're all important, right? But like the way others treat them would make them seem unimportant. 
the helpless. Anybody seem helpless on your street? The powerless. The insignificant. Who are the oppressed and dejected people you know? What's crazy is how hard a time we have identifying these people even though they surround us. This hard couple of years has affected people deeply, even though you can't see it. Depression is skyrocketing, along with domestic abuse and addiction, untethered and unrestrained, just ripping through everything. Suicides are up. Anxiety's up. I don't know if anybody knows how to Google a study on how many prescriptions go out, but I bet you could I bet you could easily find how those kind of prescriptions for those kind of meds to help people cope are probably through the roof. Here's, here's my five things from this passage. First, don't miss out on the blessing because you're so self-focused. Here's why I have trouble identifying the people who are struggling around me. It's because I'm too busy looking at myself. It's easy to be self-focused. It's hard to see others for who they are and what they're really going through. Don't miss out on the blessing because you're too self-focused. Listen, when the answer is quick off of my tongue to say I'm too busy or what I'm doing is too important or I don't have time for this, I can't help, I'm not good enough, I don't know what to do, maybe somebody else can figure out how to help them. I got bigger fish to fry, I got more important things to do. When I'm starting to talk like that, when those are the reasons that roll out of my mouth, First, you know what that says about me, ashamedly? It says I'm so self-focused. Maybe I am busy, but I'm less busy than I make it out to be. Sometimes I create busyness just for myself to say I'm busy. Here's what's dangerous about this. Self-focus quickly becomes self-absorbed. And when you are self-absorbed, it is the beginning of the end of any and every relationship. You're self-absorbed, man, good luck with your marriage. I don't know, you'll probably be in one of our offices in like a year trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together. You're self-absorbed. Your faith is going to struggle. Your God is gonna be something you can fit in your back pocket, not an actual real God who has the keys to life for you. 
When you're self-absorbed, it's the beginning of the end. So here's lesson number one that I wrote down for me. Don't miss out on the blessing that I so desperately want to experience in my life, the happiness I want to experience in my life because I'm self-focused. Instead, I need to pray for eyes to see others the way God sees them. I need to slow down my role and realize that the world does not revolve around me, nor do I make the world revolve. And I need to live a life that's less about me and more about others. I told you the path was backwards. That's why not a lot of people are walking it. They think they're going to get nowhere. They miss out on the keys to true happiness. Second thing I think is so important is it could be you. It could be you. David writes this about being blessed. This is a description that the, the theologians think is, is describing who David was really in the beginning. He lived a life where he, as king or as shepherd, whoever he was, he had great regard for the weak. It's just part of who he was and why God called him a man after his own heart. But at verse four, it transitions, and now you see who's weak? Now do you see who's downtrodden? Now do you see who's beat up by life? The, the person who's struggling, the worst in verses four through nine is David. It could be you. But by the grace of God, it could be me. And I could need someone someday stronger to come alongside me and pick me up, to encourage me a little, to help me find my bearings again, to show me God. It could be you. I have a friend who did a lot of work with homeless people and, uh, and he would always try to get to their stories. It wasn't just a hit and run ministry where they threw sandwiches at them and left. They would build relationships and try to develop and help people who were stuck in homelessness in their community. Really cool thing. And my friend would always ask you know, people um, what their story was and just listen. Just, just not preach to them. Just say, hey, what's your story, man? And just listen. One time he was talking to this guy he had built a relationship with over a couple of meetings, and the guy said to him, he said, I'll tell you my story. He said, I, I used to be on Wall Street. I lived in New York. I was making buku bucks so young. I didn't know what to do with all of the money I had, but I was living life, man, one party to another party. I was rolling in it. It was crazy and fast and exciting, and money became my God, and I, I, I had a decision one decision I made that compromised my integrity that I thought would, I would get away with clean. I ended up getting arrested by the feds for cheating. I went away to jail. The, the addictions that I built when I was rolling in the money stayed. The alcohol problem I had stayed, but I lost everything else. All the wealth I had, the beautiful home I had, my wife, my kids, nobody's talked to me. I'm stuck with this addiction and I lost everything else because of that one decision. And he looked at my friend and he said this, I'm gonna clean it up for you. But he said something like this, you know what I'm saying? Buckle up. <laughs> he said, we're all one bad decision from defecating in a can. 
Now that's the clean version. So if that one messes with you, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say. But by the grace of God, it could be me. When you start to understand that, man, it really opens your eyes up to the people around you. But by the grace of God, I could be sunk in depression. I could lose my family. I could make some terrible decisions. Lord knows I make terrible decisions from time to time. But by the grace of God, you see, the number two thing is to remember out out of this is it could be you. It could be you. And here it was, David. Number three, David acts, always acts out of confidence in him. Now, this is a different relational idea, I think, for us. We act often in relationships out of confidence in ourselves and confidence in the other person. I can trust them. So I can, I can have confidence in this relationship. They're trustworthy until they aren't, right? Or we act in like confidence in us. I can handle it. Whatever happens, I can handle it. I, I don't care what they do because I got confidence in me. This is how we live relationally. We place confidence in other people or we place confidence in ourselves. Both of those things are bad equations and eventually will fail us in some way, hopefully in smaller ways than in bigger ways because those ways in which we fail ourselves and others fail us, they really hurt, right? David's confidence in this passage wasn't in people that he had a relationship with. It wasn't even in himself. His confidence was in the God who promised that he would bless those who show regard for the weak. His confidence was God's not gonna change even though now I'm not up running my kingdom. I'm stuck on this sickbed. His confidence was there in God because not because... Uh, It didn't change when his friends went from being his greatest allies to his biggest enemies. It it stayed the same when his BFF was his BFF and when his BFF was stabbing him in the back. His confidence wasn't in him and it wasn't in other people. It was in God to be true. God will always prove faithful to you. Always. You might not see it in a moment. You might not understand what he's doing how he's working in your circumstances. But if you're really looking and paying attention, he won't let you down. He will always prove faithful because it's his character. You can't change God, thank goodness. He remains faithful even when we aren't. And you should place your confidence in him. I know that I can have regard for the weak. And it doesn't matter how they respond. It doesn't matter who notices. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. If I live my life that way, my confidence is in God honoring it. God using it. God transforming it into something greater than I ever could have made it. Four, grace in action is beautiful. We're gonna wrap this up right now because I'm going a little long, so I'll give you four and five. Grace in action is absolutely beautiful. God expects those who have received grace to also give grace, those who have been forgiven to also forgive. When you combine grace 
with how you live, when you put your faith into action outside of these walls and you live for others and you serve others and you go out of way to, live your, to not live a self-focused life, your life becomes a beautiful picture. And the last one, the number five, is the impact is always greater. Did you catch what it said there in the middle? They are counted among the blessed in the land. They're counted among the blessed in the land. See, it's not just God who notices and who honors a life lived like that. Others notice it and honor it too. And the impact you make when you Put yourself aside for a minute. Just focus on loving others because God has loved you. Serving others and humbling yourself like Jesus humbled himself and came and served us to serve others. The impact you make and who you will inspire goes way beyond the scope of your own vision. God will always do more than you thought of asking for and more than you could have imagined. Let's pray. God, would you help us to live less self-focused and more for others? It's so simple. It's so hard. And man, sometimes I really stink at it. I'm thankful for your grace and your forgiveness. Such a simple concept. Maybe not even that inspiring. But so, so important in your kingdom. So would you help us to have the courage to live lives that are less self-focused and more focused on you and the people you put around us. We admit that we have been blind to what really, what people are really going through. We've been less empathetic than we should be. We've, we haven't been paying attention. We've been distracted. But yet you place all these people in our lives so that we can lift them up and encourage them, help them see more of you. So I pray that this week we'd have eyes like your eyes. We'd see people like you see people. We want to not just know what it means to be happy, but we want to experience it. And I know the backward path is one that we find difficult to walk, but that's just because we've been walking the other way so long. Would you help us each take a little step on this backward path and putting others before ourselves? Some of us need to start that in our homes. Some of us need to start that in our workplaces, in our schools. We want to be open to how you want to use us this week. Give us courage to follow you and help us to place our confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.